And so there's like these these certain personalities or these uh, you know these just like modes of perception that are apparent in some people where they kind of go they go off the deep end and what it always implies is a certain amount of risk a certain amount of willingness to endure exactly the kind of ostracism and whatever else that Isley describes because it's not a system that's maintained with like brute force coercion it's a system that's maintained by academics sort of being snobs and saying like oh obviously you've lost your mind and you've decided to do something silly and irrelevant and humanistic Hi, everyone. Welcome to Artifact number 52. I am joined for the third time for my conversation with Arnold Schroeder. Arnold Schroeder is a radical climate activist and researcher. He also has a podcast, Fight Like an Animal podcast, which discusses human nature, uh, climate uh, from a, I would call a left-wing perspective, but uh, uh, neither of us, I think, are truly left-wing in the conventional sense. We definitely have beliefs that would sort of disrupt it in that regard. And now we're going to be discussing a book that I assumed would have a lot to do with Arnold's own view of the world, uh, Lauren Isley's The Night Country. And it's a book that in my early 20s definitely had a very strong impact on me when I was in college. It's one of those things that since I'm a writer myself, it definitely influenced my style, the way that I uh, sort of try to combine disparate ideas together. Lauren Isley was a paleontologist who, although he was very much in the scientific world, he was also very interested in the arts and finding a mode of expression that many scientists, frankly, want nothing to do with right we we see for instance and maybe it's a little less popular now but we have this if you look at twitter for instance uh, people making fun of the humanities they say things like oh all you have to do is just study stem all the only thing that matters is science right hard sciences math that sort of thing and of course right there's a very vast territory that's missing which is how you manufacture values what they mean um the fact that things can't truly be value free and the way that Lorne Isley combines these various uh, observations, I think, is useful not only for scientists to take stock of, but specifically for writers. And since uh, uh, Arnold is working on something that we could sort of call quasi-fictional, futuristic in his own life, uh, maybe there's going to be some overlap. So I guess we could begin with, Arnold, your initial impressions. Was my guess that this would be something that you would be very in tune with? Uh, was that right? Oh, yeah. I mean, in the first, it's kind of more concentrated in the first, I don't know, like 30 pages or something. There's a number of statements he makes, like experiences he describes or statements he make that were like uncannily familiar to me, where, you know, like big pivotal moments in my life. He was describing something that impacted him that feels very much like a version of the same thing that I experienced, you know, and, uh, I'm very fascinated by this way. There'll be these uncanny moments when I, because I read a lot of, read a lot of writing by scientists for a popular audience, and a lot of the time they'll they'll throw in some autobiography or whatever at some point. And I'm always really struck by these 
recurrent sort of correlations between things people have experienced and worldviews that they have that don't have any like overt sort of logical relationship to what they're describing you know like there's this this guy that reminded me of Isley is Robert Lanza who is a biologist who writes a lot of about quantum physics and like what the relationship between consciousness life and the kind of fundamental nature of reality is but he he phrases some of the some of like the problems with these scientific realms he uses like phrasing that is uncannily like how i've talked in my podcast i mean like word for word you know and he also describes childhood experiences that are exact like these like weirdly idiosyncratically specific things that i've experienced and uh i had the same experience with isley when he talks about like the night you know like his encounters with creatures of the night with his sense of being one at points in time the sense of like freedom and expansive possibility walking places that most people wouldn't like you know like distances most people would walk and stuff like that and so i was really I, yeah, I hadn't encountered his work before, and I was really struck by what he was doing and just by his ability to kind of start describing something that you're not you're not like sure. It, it's it's crazy how quick the impact occurs where he is just like describing something he's experiencing and suddenly it's like this torrent of bizarre otherworldly sensations. And I mean, that's that was it's like really skillful. You could I could easily see studying that quite a bit to try to emulate it because that's like that's such a gift to be able to just be talking about like walking to some city on a sparse plane and then just at some point somewhere in the midst of like a paragraph you're in this like very very impotent dreamlike state you know and mm -hmm. it's incredible he's an incredible writer yeah yeah i mean uh, the, the the reason for my uh just taking him upon as an influence was exactly that, right? It's the ability to, in uncanny fashion, just combine these disparate elements, right? In in a way where you could imagine, right, exactly why for at least much of his life, he he would have felt like an outsider and possibly, I mean, to the very end, right? He, he keeps calling himself like a fugitive, right? That there's a category of person that he calls a fugitive. And this could be handled different ways. Like you could be a fugitive who, like he has this one like wonderful description of the scientist that he knows. And maybe we'll read that passage where, uh, he's somebody with a very kind of sharp mind uh he has a lot of like a, a artistic sort of a ambition and yet he seems to be spending the majority of his life not majority of his life but a lot of his free time just like watching these like dumb movies about nothing and it's almost as if like he he wants to escape something difficult or or something else but you could be a fugitive in a different sense right a fugitive in the sense that you can't quite uh you you can't quite fit into the world very easily i mean until uh, the very end he has passages in this book and there's like other examples elsewhere where he's just describing the fact that uh scientists and students would come up to him and say like you know lauren like what are you doing uh, you're supposed to be doing actual science why are you going off on these like flights of fancy but the irony is you know as a scientist uh he says that he's made no great discoveries um that's a direct line from from the book i've made no great discoveries and 
despite that, like as a scientist, he would probably end up being like, you know, imagine like a century or two from now when all these kinds of things really come into fruition and, and you know, uh, he, he would be viewed very prophetic. He would be, you know, more famous than many scientists working on real discoveries today, right? So that's another thing that maybe we could talk about, the whole kind of tension between the kinds of um, maybe contributions one can make to the world. Like you could be an artist, right? Which is a much more abstract in terms of contribution. And yet um, you could be a, a scientist uh, or some kind of medical professional with, with a more kind of uh, robustly, more kind of like tangible, you know, easily calculated contribution. But there's something about these uh, more invisible contributions like with Isley that do end up in a weird way, like really kind of pushing science forward. Like if you look at the memoirs of, you know, all the like top scientists, they're constantly talking about, you know, this, you know, the, this work of Shakespeare changed my life or, you know, this uh, poem really, you know, set me on my path. Right. It's 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 something that really like the arts have a way of like really building up tension, tension, tension. Then, you know, the dam bursts and there's like a new way of, of seeing the world in that way. I feel like we've lost what used to be termed uh, the naturalist, right, or the natural philosopher. Right. Like David Hume could be a natural philosopher, but also has like a scientific mind. Right. You have um, uh, you have uh, uh, those that are more kind of flagrantly, perhaps scientific, like Francis Bacon and others uh, who and it's kind of like a, at, a, at a time, I guess, before where specialized knowledge was um, maybe like a little less relevant. Whereas like today, if you want to do real, let's say, work in theoretical physics, you're going to have to probably dedicate a very substantial portion of uh, your life to it. Right. If not the majority of your life to it. Whereas a natural philosopher centuries ago, you have Lucretius, right, uh, on the nature of things where he has this whole kind of like big theory as to, you know, the big and small, the cosmos and how things come to be. Um, that wouldn't really fly in science now. And yet, you know, we probably uh, know more about Lucretius than we know more about uh, more of the robust scientists during his uh, era, right, simply because he created the, the arts, right? So um, like, what, what do you think about uh, like the loss of what we might term natural philosophy? Like, do you think there are people that are like sufficiently working this uh, tradition now or what? Well, I mean, it's interesting because it's to a large extent how I conceive of, of what I'm doing, right? Like I'm not really doing, it's, it's novel. Like right now I'm actually doing a little bit of original research, but mostly I don't, mostly I just read very widely and then I integrate scientific findings into a framework that they're usually excluded from that has to do with just why societies are the way they are and what sort of possibilities exist for them. And because not a lot of people are doing it, there's a lot of low hanging fruit. You know, I find that, and, and it's really the case that I get emails from people in academic institutions sometimes saying like, it's probably good you didn't go to school because mm -hmm. you're not constrained in the ways that so many people are but at the same time so like so yeah i mean there is like definitely a lack of this kind of thing in terms of scale there, there's a, there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff laying around for somebody to just fucking pick up who wants to not confine themselves to like a, a really hyper specialized niche but at the same time i do assiduously collect the writings, the books and the papers of people who kind of still do fall into that niche. And so I would say there is a steady stream of them. You know, they do exist and they 
there's there's always people out there who specialized in whatever they specialized in and uh at some point felt like the answers weren't satisfying and what i think what fascinates me most about those people is whether and to what extent there's like a kind of mind at work like a sort of an innately different mind a set of experiences that people have had that lead this tiny minority to kind of peel away from convention and start to ask you know to be like a biologist that suddenly decides to ask like a lot of questions about the nature of consciousness or something like that and you can even see in the way that some people decide that they're going to pursue a really big topic that has like obvious fundamental implications for everything we're doing and experiencing how much that in itself is not really like there's something that feels more like conventional institutional science as it's practiced today to say like well i'm studying inhibitory mechanisms in the prefrontal cortex that might have something to do with voluntary motor control and consciousness than it is to say like i'll just read anything as long as it tells me something about what consciousness is right there's something about being like hyper acutely focused in some really narrow domain that just kind of like feels more like oh that's like more credible that's more mm -hmm. that just has more of the imprintur of like that's like a scientist right there and so there's like these these certain personalities or these uh you know these just like modes of perception that are apparent in some people where they kind of go they go off the deep end and what it always implies is a certain amount of risk, a certain amount of willingness to endure exactly the kind of ostracism and whatever else that Isley describes, because it's not a system that's maintained with like brute force coercion. It's a system that's maintained by academics sort of being snobs and saying like, oh, obviously you've lost your mind and you've decided to do something silly and irrelevant and humanistic, you know? Um, and so the way that Isley describes at the beginning, like, like what I think is interesting about his book and some of the others by authors who I do consider to be in this kind of like broad, this naturalist category, let's say, is that that sense of being an outsider, of being like a fugitive, of there being some kind of fundamental chasm between that individual and others is there even when they're young, like Isley describes this sense of like a, a sort of like affinity with or a sense of communion with animals who are looking at humans from a nocturnal perspective like humans have created these like little pools of light that they inhabit and they might even be during the day domestic animals but he, you know he's talking about how at night there's something else and when they look into the human world it's like with very different eyes he talks about that a number of times that's a, a repeatedly elaborated theme in the beginning of the book and, but then he talks about experiencing the world like that and that was one of the things that really struck me as i can remember so distinctly being like 14 15 years old and like kind of going through those first experiences where i would walk around all night for a day or two or three you know where i would just be walking around and like I would come to residential neighborhoods and be like looking through the windows at people like making dinner and watching television and the sense of like absolute distance between, you know, like that side of the glass and my side of the glass was so profound. I mean, you know, being really like, oh, wow, like I'm not I'm like really not part of that. Like I'm not in that fabric at all. 
And his was the first book I had ever read that described something like that. But so I thought it was really interesting that both of us have taken on these kind of, I mean, he actually went to school and I didn't, but both of us have taken on these kind of like scientific pursuits in that framework of like the, the naturalist, the person who's not going to just like, you know, find, like elaborate the details of some like hyper niche specialization. Um, but I do think that those people are out there and that there is a sort of, there's always this steady countercurrent, and that really tells us something about what science could be or what art could be, but it's always a minority voice. And I don't know mm -hmm. when or if that'll change, you know? I mean, uh, perhaps but, it should be a minority voice, right? In the sense of, um, you know, like if everybody decides to start doing that, it's no longer going to be interesting, right? It's not like there's something about it where it's just going to innately attract uh, people that are less comprehensive and less willing to sort of stand outside of their own um, or, or not maybe outside of their own, but like outside of like whatever the uh, received wisdom point of view is. Right. Like one of the chief advantages, like you mentioned, is, you know, if you have people telling you uh, it's good, you didn't go to school for this or that. Uh, it, there is this kind of like fundamental lack of constraints. There is something to the idea of uh, being able to look into things from, you know, just a, a completely kind of like deracinated perspective or perhaps, not, well, it wouldn't be deracinated for, uh, from the sense of like, you know, where you are, where you're standing. Another big thing in, in this text in particular is he's constantly trying to sort of like dance around you know like the subject object distinction distinction like you mentioned for instance uh um you know like obviously an objective fact is you see these people cooking or whatever like you know e eating uh, behind this window uh that is an objective fact in the world the other objective fact is there is someone else that's walking by the window and peering in right um uh, th th there there has to be a way to sort of uh congeal the two make them uh, uh uh make sense in a way where you know all the details of the world like if you could sort of capture them all at once uh it probably gets you a little bit closer to whatever slice of reality that you're studying and m maybe we could like talk about uh how everything gets framed so before even like just talking about the book proper just uh it, it, it they did do a good job with this edition in terms of like the illustrations right like um yeah like it, it really captures like because when i read uh, night country for the first time it was you know it was like something without any kind of pictures it was like this old hardbound uh copy i guess from the time when it was uh, first published and here you like like a lot of this just kind of looks like my idea of what maybe the book should have looked like when i was first reading it uh, they have like a nice use of uh, black uh, uh, as negative space. Light is just all kind of cross hatched, and um, you know it's uh, it's it's nicely done. Like look at this tree, for instance, right? And yeah. this like illumination around the figures, as if almost as if like there's like an aura right right around anything that's like you know uh, animate, um, which kind of like uh, uh, I guess captures uh, some of what he talks about. With you know, is there anything other than uh, the machine, right? If we're the ghost in the machine, it, does that ghost even exist? But anyway, so like in, in the forward to uh, the book, this is how he kind of like frames the entire text, which is it's it's a collection of essays. Uh, they're not totally disconnected, but it seems like he sort of like put them together after the fact and not necessarily all written for this book. So the forward frames everything like this. Last week, scuffing the turf while waiting for a plane flight to begin, 
I turned up a broken wheel from a child's toy. It had once been painted a golden yellow. On impulse, I pushed it into the pocket of my top coat. For luck, I said to myself and shivered. My mind ran instantly back along a dimension hazy even to myself. This volume, as all my readers will recognize, has been drawn from many times and places in the wilderness of a single life. Though I sit in a warm room beneath a lamp as I arrange these pieces, my thoughts are all of night, of outer cold and inner darkness. These chapters, then, are the annals of a long and uncompleted running. I leave them here lest the end come on me unawares as it does upon all fugitives. There is a shadow on the wall before me. It is my own. The hour is late. I write in a hotel room at midnight. Tomorrow, the shadow on the wall will be that of another. So what do you, what do you think about that as a framing device, both in terms of just, um, you know, style, but also like what, what he's actually uh, saying, uh, given, you know, that you've already read the books, like in hindsight, how does this forward play out again in your mind? Yeah, I mean, I think that, right, they're not, they're not totally disconnected essays. And it seems like at least in a number of cases, it's about moments where he's, he's aware of belonging to a world that mostly circumscribes human experience most of the time you know he's mostly talking about being in the shadows looking into the illuminated room or whatever it is and uh and then everything like all the synthesis i feel flows from that it flows like the fact that he's able to examine the interrelations between things that most people aren't comes from that initial alienation you know and that's what makes it such a that's what like over and over makes it such a like poignant just like the flow it, it perfectly captures like the flow of the writing where it's like okay now he's he's talking to a man who has kind of gone insane and believes that some geological artifact is a petrified woman that he seems to have fallen in love with on these incessantly windswept planes or whatever but then he's pivoting to you know like a really expansive discussion of, of yeah exactly like what the like respective sort of the auras or whatever these like light cones of awareness that seem to project from us all like what they mean and if they're real and what happens when they interact with one another when you get like a particularly strange sort of configuration of perceptions overlapping with another particularly strange configuration of perceptions and it's like you know but we're still out there on the like windswept plane and he just like is mentioning the wind over and over again or whatever and so it's like in a way i yeah like i have this notion that uh traditional societies had like all these things about achieving some kind of state of knowledge or like vision or initiation through some kind of intense experience of you know privation or suffering sleep deprivation drugs dancing all night you know going into the forest alone when you're 16 with nothing but a knife and not being allowed to come back and that you get something out of that you get something out of having these really intense experiences that's like a, a privileged a knowledge a, a form of seeing the world an ability to comprehend things that privileges an extreme state of experience and that scientists don't really talk about that but it does actually seem like if you look at the history of science 
there's all these moments where people were having really intense experiences like a lot of quantum physics came about because heisenberg was having a fever or whatever you know they came about because people were having these really like intense experiences and it seems like he's kind of documenting that as like a a potential path right that you you could be like this fugitive this night creature you could have all these like very intense sort of encounters with reality and as a result you could know something that we might properly call science in some contexts or just like an awareness of the nature of the universe more broadly but he's he's like kind of like showing that mode over and over again that those like those privileged moments of departure from ordinary experience that typically only come about when you've really fucked yourself up in some way. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I just think it's, yeah, I mean, it's pretty brilliant. Mm -hmm. Well, what do you think about this whole kind of like dynamic? Like, so, I mean, it is called the night country uh, and especially like early on, like he's really like fleshing out this idea of night as well as running. Um, he says things like, uh, you know, you, you, you shouldn't go, right. You shouldn't go to these like little places and these niches, but you will not listen, right. You keep getting drawn to these tunnels and these caves and these forests, both like, obviously, you know, uh, in his uh, own personal life, actually, in fact, but also symbolically as well. Uh, yeah. what do you think about this role of like, what is night exactly? Like, just like in terms of, evolution but also just in terms of how you know i guess like modern society kind of like intervenes in that way because it is kind of surprising to me on the one hand that um like when, when you think back to many of your own kind of experiences growing up I, I think it's probably a constant for many that so many of the best kind of memories and experiences especially after the fact our right? memory being something that gets kind of uh sort of uh ghost all kinds of permutations in your mind before it you know it's able to become a memory obviously right it's very selective in that way things are expanded other things are limited um he, he has a line in the book actually you know the the brain is remarkable not only for what it uh, uh takes in but also the things it chooses yeah. to leave out um what, what do you think about the role of uh night in in human experience things like nostalgia how much of it is just a matter of well maybe this is something that uh a hundred thousand years ago uh people or proto people wouldn't necessarily view in that way right with like pitch black but now like if you imagine in the city you could have many you know so-called positive experiences even just walking down the street because you get street lamps right compared to um like i like any time that i go hiking like and if it ever gets late one thing that's becomes very shocking is how much of america is just totally pitch black even if it's around houses like you could step out on the road and you might not see a car until literally it's like 10 feet away from you because it you know goes past the curb and suddenly it's, it's uh, uh the lights right all you see are stars uh, but, you know, with the kind of modern world, we do have these kinds of interventions where um, it, it's almost as if like they're helping us shape memories, right? They're sort of taking away some of the darkness and it's kind of like filling in kind of like with almost purely human space. And, you know, by also by that metric, like perhaps damaging um, animals, right? You know, animals that maybe should be in pitch black. Now they have to deal with, uh, you know, kind of like the, the forest that we end up constructing, that sort of thing. Um, so what do you think about like the, the role of night in the book and also like the role of night just kind of like in, in human experience? What, why do you think this kind of symbolism works, I guess? Yeah, I mean, I think, it, well, 
I think ultimately it actually probably just works because there's there is like a pretty intense evolved sort of I don't know man it's weird actually my own personal experience like I'm not sure I'm not sure where other people land on this because when I was really like pretty young say like 14 15 16 I would just camp all the time without any kind of light or any you know I would just like walk through the forest until I was in, like well after dark and then I would just lay down wherever and I never experienced any of this stuff but at some point it's almost like you know those years are supposed to be years of intensely exploratory novelty seeking like you know like sort of not particularly cautious behavior and at some point this thing kicked in it was really interesting to watch it kick in because it was clearly not like a purely cultural artifact or whatever um or like the only possible state i could inhabit because i didn't used to be like that but you know i watched this kind of like night fear kick in this specifically like predatory fear and maybe it was just because i had encounters like i had had enough encounters at that point with like mountain lions and stuff like that that i just like became more aware i can remember when i was 15 a mountain lion screamed at me from like right i mean you know a few feet away and uh i think that it was thinking about pouncing on me but it screamed and then just ran in the other direction because i think it was surprised by like the kind of animal i was but uh like i can remember that almost not registering being like oh wow a mountain lion just screamed at me that you know it's something to think about but like it really not like registering on any kind of like limbic system level and then yeah you know it's like at some point that really kicked in and so I guess I kind of assume that there is just that very fundamental sort of like the night is populated, like feel that we get when we're in the dark. And that gives it this like very rich set of associations. But then I think it also works because we so like ever since, you know, you sit around a fire with some people somewhere and you become very acutely aware that your ancestors really did do that for like hundreds of thousands of years you know it really feels like oh, okay this is a definingly human thing is like here we are in this tiny pool of light and so the moment you exit it and you look at the light from far away there is this distinct sense of social separation or you know like you've you've exited social consensus and all that stuff and so then there's all the like initiatory experiences that are associated with that throughout human history. The idea that to become a fully realized human being, you have to experience some form of exit from the like the group and the society and the protection and comfort it provides and just go confront the world purely on its own terms for a while. And it seems like night is very wrapped up in that. And so, yeah, I mean, I think he's, I think he's just like, there's all that stuff. There's the way that the metaphor works logically, but then there's all the deep sort of experiential associations that are engendered by human evolution. And he seems to just be willing to play with like, to like freely sort of mingle all of those elements just exactly as often as he feels like, which is cool. Mm -hmm. Early on, there's this uh, discussion of uh, so he he's a child at the time, and I guess he he comes across on page six uh, some children that are a bit older than he is, and uh, I think it's uh, in a cave or like somewhere in the beach where um, it seems to be a bunch of kids that want to uh, destroy what he calls a huge old turtle asleep in the ferns, right? So they're trying to kill it. 
uh, he, they, uh, he says, I saw his end. They pounded him to death with stones on the other side of the pool while I looked on in stupefied horror. I had never seen death before. And at the bottom, he characterizes it like this. I had discovered evil. It was a monstrous and corroding knowledge. And it could not be told to adults because it was the evil of childhood in which no one believes. I was alone with it in the dark. And in the dark henceforth, in some fashion, I was destined to stay until two years later I found a gold wheel. I played alone in those days, particularly after my rejection by the boys who regarded Green Gulch as their territory. I took to creeping up alleys and peering through hedges. I was not miserable. There was a wonderful compensating secrecy about these activities. I had little shelters and hedgerows, and I knew and perfected secret entrances and exits into the most amazing worlds. What do you think about his characterization of uh, evil? Because there's this kind of like ongoing debate, I guess, in philosophy as to whether or not evil in fact exists or if it's just some sort of like, you know, like a slight amplification of whatever we might term term to be like the opposite of good, right? You know, certain things are bad, so certain things are worse. Then eventually you get to something that in the popular imagination could be called evil like where do you stand on its uh, existence and what do you think about that idea of like he calls it and i think this kind of speaks to you know in terms of like how maybe like in like technical philosophy this can't really be broached because it's an evil that exists strictly in childhood right it's a sort of thing that as a child you might instinctively and immediately understand as evil. Like I remember like something like similar. I remember like at a, at a camp that I went to and there were like, you know, kids that were uh, uh, torturing like some like little animal. I, I, I don't even remember the details, but you know, I remember the time thinking like, you know, yeah, th there is like something evil here, but if I were to like go tell anybody, would adults actually really care? Or, you know, cause I, I had the feeling that they probably have been so kind of like inured from, from all this for so long uh, and so kind of like dead to whatever experiences they might have that it's not going to be considered like a big deal, right? Worse to a child, maybe it would be a big deal. Um, what do you think about the, the, those framings and the concept of evil? Yeah, well, and I mean, I think that that runs a whole spectrum. I mean, I think oftentimes kids, I know that this happened to me a lot in childhood, are sensitive to evils that have become like very integrated into mm -hmm our everyday social fabric and they're like hey why are we doing this to, like why is the man sleeping outside and the adults are like don't worry about it kid you know yeah and uh, <laughs> yeah. like um but uh but i totally i totally fall on that and i don't i guess i honestly don't have like very complex arguments about it but i'm totally like oh yeah like evil definitely exists and it was like we came up with a set of descriptive terms that include evil for a reason because it does describe something that you know it's like it, i guess i feel like it's it it's maybe like one thing to ask like is there some objective category that you can map out in any other terms i don't know but like the terms in which it exists is there's like something that just registers in our perception as evil that is very very distinct from like oh, that shouldn't be happening, or that really shows you like the excesses of human behavior or whatever. And to me, it actually is like a way that I'm interested in talking about the world that we encounter now, where I'm like, yeah, you see like the guys who like take the instructions from the tower with the 
flashing red beam of light on it to like drive their machines around to dig up the earth to like change the temperature to unleash storms and fires all over the world and see how they've created this like scarred hellscape like there you know there's a reason that lord of the rings like describes mordor in exactly the same terms and calls it fucking evil you know and it's like it's okay to just say that these two things feel the same way and that's what evil is it's a human subjective register but like that that moment in the book in terms of like the childhood association and all that that moment in the book i felt was the first time that he did that thing that then happens over and over again where he's describing something and there it suddenly is like transfigured into something that's way more than the sum of its parts and like the moment when he talks about like the change in their affect and the you know like where and just like kind of how it felt and how they looked when they were smashing the turtle it's like the first moment in the book where there's one of those really uncanny transformations and it's like suddenly we were one place and now we're somewhere very strange and vast and weird and and very like electric feeling um but you know he also talks in the book so much about uh like the multiple potentialities that exist within a person and his sort of like his sense of opposition to these scientific descriptions of like what humanity is that are very static. Um, and I think that there's also just really something like what is so interesting about that is that those kids probably contained all kinds of different elements. And there's like what, it, what he's calling evil is something that was elicited in this one particular context at this one particular time and there's just something kind of fascinating about how fluid the relationship between them seeming like innocent children and being straight up fucking evil is you know mm -hmm. it's like it's uh <clears throat> and uh yeah so I, I don't know i think that um i can i can remember similar experiences and i think that there's there's that thing to be gotten out of it that you can see these like in children you can see these flashes of like many different ways like many different modes that could in adulthood come to like dominate a person mm -hmm. in different social conditions and something that i would call evil is totally it's totally one of them it's like one mm -hmm. of the multitudes that we possess for sure yeah, I definitely think that if you're one of these people that, um, you know, to get back to the idea of, a, 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 you know, a natural philosopher, uh, if you're anywhere kind of like in that mold, you're, you're like, if you have like any kind of like metaphorical or symbolic thinking, like you're going to have to just, you know, be like straight up like, yes, like evil exists, right? Yeah. Like there, there's kind of, there's going to be like no way out, right? There's no amount of like technical haranguing that you could do to, uh, you know, make that not be the case. And, you know, to the idea of like children, you know, it's one of those things where like you can't call uh, obviously children blank slates, right? Because uh, neither of us believe in such a thing. Uh, at the same time, there's definitely something about childhood where, you know, all these kind of like parameters are a lot more open-ended. Like I could imagine like if, if like a father, you know, like found out about, um, you know, his kid killing an ancient turtle and then just like beat the shit out of him and being like, you're never going to be doing this fucking thing again, right? Yeah. Uh, this is evil and this is why. Like he might, you know, very much, you know, I'd never do such a thing again and be very ashamed and have that be like a, a, a major part, right, of his memories. Like, you know, I did this thing and there was this severe consequence for it. Um, but yeah, but like there's something about like uh, children where you see like all these possibilities. So like when you have 
something like you know like a a mass killing event come out like it's not uh it's 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 not going to be like you know it's not the same thing as like an adult mass killer or like an adult mob right with children it's going to be much more limited to you know not even killing like it would be much more limited to sort of like extracting pain of some sort right which uh, like it, it makes it seem you know perhaps uh, has more of those qualities of evil in that way right because it's just in some ways like like you know there's something about it where it's like not because it's not so totally rational, right? There's something malformed about it, right? It it feels scarier, right, than other things because it's not something you could uh, reason about, right? You can't read like you you can't reason with the children out of like killing the turtle, right? The only thing that would happen in that situation is if you could employ brute first force to prevent them, you know, that might be the only thing, right? Or if an adult will come in suddenly, it's like, well. You know, adult being kind of like lightning rod for reason for like the adult world. You know, if they say a certain thing has to happen, maybe it'll happen. So, but anyway, um, uh, there, there's this. Uh, uh, so early on, when he's uh, talking more about his, because like early on in the book, it's kind of deals with a lot of his childhood memories and his kind of like you know going through these uh, various experiences through tunnels and sewers and later on he's like doing the same thing but as an adult right he's like crawling through yeah. caves <laughs> right now he has like maybe equipment with him now he's allowed right now it's sanctioned for him to do so no one's going to come after him no father is going to chide him for it right but he's doing the same thing but you know as a child uh he's with this uh, guy that he calls the rat uh seems to be like a kid that is older uh than he is and they're going through the sewer and uh i i uh, i first read this book like a long time ago so when i reread it now i remember being like still at the edge of my seat where he's describing like the water trickling in yeah. and he thinks this is actually like you know going to be a huge deluge that might you know trap them and, and drown all of the kids so it's like him and a few other kids including the rat and it just turns out to be like a fire hydrant in the end and so this is not the event that ends up uh, uh, killing uh, them or the rats, but like soon after that, uh, he does this like wonderful thing stylistically where he takes an event where you think might end in some sort of like death. And he says, well, okay, it's fine. Nothing happened. But then immediately after he goes into the ways in which rat died. <laughs> right. Yeah, and it's, you know, it's, it's in more ways, more powerful. Right. Um, so the way that he characterizes like this. So like thinking back to the conversation, we can come back later with the gang, I ventured. The rat turned and looked at me and through me and beyond me. He tapped my arm, and I could see the thin, quizzical line deepen on his sharp forehead. We'll keep it for our own, he said, just us. Then he turned, and we left that sound vibrating the air and went back to the world. A few weeks later, he was dead, dead of some casual childhood illness. All that consuming energy and passionate intellectual hunger had come to nothing. In later years, places of learning would become familiar sights to me. I never met a mind like his again. And the reason why like, I highlighted that is it struck me as like something that probably happens, not probably, it does happen all around us. You know, people that because of their uh, circumstances or their inability to thrive or, you know, even if they end up making wrong choices, I think that's all kind of like part of the same equation. Um you know they 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 could have something very unique to contribute that would uh, that is otherwise just like non-existent right there might have never been you know in the rats future the possibility of like a college education 
or you know anything along those lines right where maybe this kind of like probing mind could be uh, allowed to be more constructive or even you know outside of a college education like the, the just like no kind of like a, a obvious avenue for that to occur like what do you think about like both like the parameters of just like human uh you know just just human variability and like all, all these like minds and all these uh, things are like around us that you could tell like are just not going to be allowed to thrive because i say this story all the time like the the most talented poet that i know uh is a um is a former you know gang member from queens new york right that had all kinds of crazy experiences growing up and never had a college education and you know he's lucky in the sense that he had the wherewithal and the intelligence to sort of like avoid the worst case scenarios and you know sort of construct his life where he could like write for the rest of his life but you could imagine many people might have that little spark right they can't stick to it maybe it's because of a bad set of choices or maybe it's because of circumstances maybe it's a combination like what do you think about like that you know that kind of like sense of like human variability and you know, maybe how that could be tapped uh, in the future under better circumstances. Yeah, I mean, I think that, I think about this all the time. Um, I, I think about, as as I read, you know, as I read science, I think about all the people who are doing some useless thing, who are like getting people lattes right now, who would have the answer to the thing I'm reading that, you know, that, that like happens to me all the time. And, uh, I definitely had like similar, similar observations and experiences where I feel like a lot of the people that I've known throughout my life who most impressed me with their intelligence, their sensitivity, the uniqueness of their like ways of conceiving of things. Um, and just sort of like processing information and synthesizing it are dead, you know, <laughs> and like, um, there's, there's really something to that. There's something about what this world does to sensitive people that, you know, I think even, I think even when you abstract all of the sort of like socioeconomic and experiential factors that tend to like sequester some people into paths like grad school and sequester other people into paths like, prison or a barista job for life or whatever i think people who are more you know it's like people who are just more likely to uh to have the experience of watching the other kids smash the turtle and be really like whoa you know uh like people who are just sensitive to reality in some ways often just don't fare very well in our world because it really requires just shutting down so many capacities in so many really meaningful ways and um I, yeah i'm really fascinated like so i have my first like official scientific paper being published uh in the very immediate future um and that's like you know it's it's about the context is the ecological crisis and why certain academic disciplines are always associated with the power structure and then it's people from another academic discipline who are like talking to these people in the power structure and being like, put on the brakes, like we are going over a cliff, right? And it's like, there's these two very different kinds of minds that tend to self-select into these two very different echelons of the academy. And then those echelons of the academy kind of amplify the differences that were there to begin with. And then they end up having these conversations 
where they exist in sort of like mutually incomprehensible worlds. And, you know, these scientists are saying to these like power hungry fucking maniacs, you know, like you have to do something that's contrary to your immediate enrichment or else, you know, everybody's going to lose everything. And uh, it's uh, so, you know, like in that paper, I just used a lot of evidence about how there are psychological corollaries of like specialization into different academic disciplines and stuff, you know, like there's there's ways that we can kind of like inquire about the kinds of minds people have um, that don't have anything to do with like a particular kind of science, but that are highly predictive, like what sort of scientific theories somebody supports, what kind of like science or other sort of academic pursuit they engage in. But I think that there's also a much richer and kind of more interesting landscape of variation that we really don't know about and we really don't know how to measure that tells us about things that are more specific than like, do you become a geologist or do you become an engineer or do you become a lawyer? But that are like within those realms, like who really has, you know, unique problem solving abilities and who really like, who's able to see relationships between pieces of information that other people see in really segregated terms, you know? And uh, I don't think that we know, I don't think we know the answer to like what, whether and uh, how we would like measure or like kind of like identify this landscape of different kinds of minds. But I do think that the way that the cur current academic institutions are set up, it's very important to acknowledge that, you know, and this has been like quantitatively studied, that the paths that we go through in life in general in this society and then in academia specifically, if that's what we do, definitely like amplify our differences. They give us all these like very, like whatever fragmented perspective we have, it ends up growing more, not less fragmented over time. And so for a long time, I've just been really talking with a lot of people about how we really do almost need some kind of counter system to academia that can engage people who come from more kind of like a greater variety of backgrounds, but also that just sort of affects more synthesis that sort of like engages people in a more holistic fashion and tends to make them less like hyper amplified. I mean, it's the same thing that people talk about in the media landscape all the time where they're like, oh, you know, all this hyper polarized media is like driving people into all of these like niche irreconcilable perspectives. And I'm like, that literally started in the academy. Like what happened in the academy a long time ago is now happening in mass media, like internet information ecosystems now. And uh, there, I really see this need for us to like seriously talk about how that has like really failed as a model in terms of a problem solving model. Like if, if the question is, can like science or the academic institutions like solve the problems that society is creating, I, I would say like, it's hard to think of a better set of conditions to use as evidence for the answer being no than what we're currently experiencing. And then like, they're just, yeah, needing to be something that we can all kind of like create together that I don't, I don't know exactly like what it is or what gives it a sort of a sense that it's something real that exists in some sort of like formal definitive sense, but like 
there has to be some kind of like counter academy. There, there has to be something that we do outside of those institutions that can still like further research and further people's explorations in like the same way that academia is supposed to. Mm -hmm. So uh, Lauren Isley in uh, chapter three, uh, he has this, um, he has this passage where uh, he's describing himself at a dinner party and there was a, a man that stands up to make a, like, a little speech and he says something along the lines of, um, man will turn the earth into a garden for his own enjoyment. And he's like raising a glass as he's saying this. And the, the point of the passage is to like describe like the rat that is under the table that's kind of like, you know, rising up and almost like turning the speech into a, a mockery. And he and Isley writes something like, uh, it, it seemed as if if the rat, uh, if the rat uh, would have been able to clap, he would have done so. Right. Um, uh, uh, and, but at the same time, right. Like it's cause like you, you can't quite tell, right. Is this supposed to be a celebratory statement on the part of this man? Is it merely a, a statement of fact? Because it, it does strike to me as if like, when you look at just human needs compared to the needs of animals, uh, who knows uh, if this is simply because human beings are capable of extracting, you know, so many resources from the environment, uh, whether um, it has to do with the fact that we have this kind of like aesthetic frame of mind where we had we just have like certain needs. Like I often use the example of like in front of my house, like constructing a tree pit um, to like control like random garbage that gets, you know, thrown by like people just like walking around. And the fact that it took like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pounds of bricks and mortar and all this other stuff. And I mean, that tell you, that's a lot of resources, right? Just so that I could feel good whenever I look outside. Um, and there's much, you know, deeper, uh, obviously examples of this where, you know, the higher up that you go, like in, uh, in terms of like socioeconomic status, suddenly you have needs emerge such as like, I need a private jet, right? I need to be able to get to wherever I need to get to, uh, uh as soon as possible. I need this, I need that. Um, but do you think that that will ever be in any way like, uh, well, it's going to have to be reduced in some way, but like, can we actually eliminate this this overwhelming desire without like you know like deep sort of like cybernetic intervention are we always going to be stuck in a place where uh we're a competing with resources and b those are the most resources they can sort of continue to turn the world into into a garden like what do you think about all that yeah i mean i think in terms of human sort of like you know, our just incredible consumptive capacity, I would put it into two categories that exist on that. You know, it's like they produce those curves that show happiness in relation to wealth or whatever. And it goes up very sharply in a certain region of increasing wealth. And then it really stops rising very fast at all. You know, it's like the first getting out of poverty, you know, getting getting like some baseline security so that you know that you can eat and that you have a place to go and close a door and all that. That stuff like really drastically changes people's, uh, you know, psychological uh, states. But then wealth beyond like a really, I mean, I forget, but it's like the median income of fucking Mexico or something like that doesn't really 
actually like significantly impact people's well-being it's just this sort of like endless gnawing you know feedback loop of like wanting more because it's made you feel good in the past and mm -hmm. so you know like if you if you look at human needs in those terms and you're you're willing to like draw a line at that inflection point and be like we'll call all these needs and like yeah sure they're certainly more resource intensive than those of like any other species really but it's also like literally orders of magnitude less consumption than you know people who are just caught in some cycle of like I think that a lot of that really does come from I don't know I mean it's not something I've really experienced but I do think a lot of it comes from like a there's like a sense of uh there's like a lot of self-aggrandization that is wrapped up in some of those forms of consumption as opposed to just like a sort of like raw desire or need and I think that we live in a society that's very much ruled by a certain kind of like very narcissistic idiot you know and that I think that's something that really could just change I think that's very optional and that the like anthropological record is full of examples of people not living that way and so like that kind of consumption is is just totally not really part of like the constellation of human needs that I see but it's still true with 8 billion people on the planet or whatever it is that if everybody wants like I don't know just like the kind of modest life that I live which is just not devoted to conspicuous consumption at all but like it, it does involve like heating and cooling and reading buying books and stuff mm -hmm. you know it's like that's not that's not sustainable either and, and um I really do have this sense that um I so I'm like really really interested in uh, trying to like figure out these kind of forms of human ecology where whatever it is that we do to meet our needs uh is not like there's not a binary where it's like if we're getting something out of a piece of the earth or some organism that exists in it that it's like uh it, that it inevitably implies destruction right it's like the environmental paradigm up until very recently has been one of sort of like drawing a line and being like there should be places humans intervene and places that they don't because everywhere we intervene for any need you know destruction and tragedy follows and so I've been like really I mean a lot of this is still sort of scientifically very tentative but I've been spending a lot more time recently reading about like synthetic biology and sort of like novel human ecologies of of a you know of like a variety of approaches to you know like algae based economies that toss a bunch of biomass in like a yeah, this is know. your most recent uh, podcast episode file like an animal where you covered that yeah, yeah and I've done a ton of reading like that's like really just like the tip of the iceberg but I really I really feel like that should actually be an aspirational like I don't know what we'll achieve but I feel like it's actually really important to be able to point ourselves towards some kind of set of aspirations where we could imagine like sort of continuing to like make our societies more complex and like just to like explore new terrains of possibility like I don't think we should think of environmentalism solely in terms of like limits and constraints is I guess basically what I'm saying mm -hmm. yeah um there, there there's this uh, uh interesting part that I I uh 
this is really what stuck with me most when I first read uh, The Night Country uh, in chapter five, where he's describing the man uh, on a, I think it was a Philadelphia train, it's pages 62, 63, yeah. um, where uh, it looks like it's it could be a homeless man, um, I guess, judging by, by his clothes. Uh, but the way that it's being described is, I had come into the smoking apartment of a train at midnight, out of the tumult of a New York weekend. Oh, so it's in New York. As I settled into a corner, I noticed a man with a paper sack a few seats beyond me. He was meager of flesh, and his cheeks had already taken on the molding of the skull beneath them. His threadbare clothing suggested that his remaining possessions were contained in the sack poised on his knees. His eyes were closed, his head flung back. He drowsed either from exhaustion or liquor, or both. In that city at midnight, there were many like him. By degrees, the train filled and took its way into the dark. After a time, the door opened and the conductor shouldered his way in, demanding tickets. I had one sleepy eye fastened on the dead-faced derelict. It is thus one hears from the gods. Tickets, bawled the conductor. I suppose everyone in the car was wa watching for the usual thing to occur. What happened was much more terrible. Slowly, the man opened his eyes, the dead man's eyes. Slowly, a stick-like arm reached down and fumbled in his pocket, producing a roll of bills. Give me, he said then, and his voice held the croak of a raven in the churchyard. Give me a ticket wherever it is. And he takes it for the rest of the chapter as a kind of like a symbol for uh, essentially where civilization, uh, maybe ours, but maybe even innately, and we could talk about this, like are, is civilization innately structured in a way where you know, we're just getting a ticket to wherever, wherever it is, right? Mm -hmm. Who knows where it's going, right? Later on, he he cautions uh, the reader along the lines of that civilization is like this uh, runaway, uh, um, you know, a horse-drawn carriage that, uh, you know, like if 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 you look below, right, there might be no nothing underneath. Um, is is human society kind of like damned to essentially be in the state where uh, since you know, meaning can't be like, it can't be made for us, right? Like we can't forever derive meaning and purpose just from like something like, you know, reading the Bible, right? We can't depend necessarily on religious texts. We can't depend on things that people might've told us. We have to always find a way to construct and co-construct meaning and purpose as, as time goes on. Uh, is civilization in this kind of like state where, because he also talks about cultural evolution and it would apply where evolution is just kind of like very like object oriented, right? Meaning like there's an objective in place, right? You have to adapt to, you know, some sort of a, a set of circumstances. So whether or not it's like good or bad, you're simply going to, you know, take on those adaptations to deal with that in this kind of like instrumental fashion. Is civilization just kind of like in the same situation where we're just kind of groping right through this uh, darkness where um you know whatever is instrumental to us it gets picked up and we don't exactly know what we're accumulating we don't know if we're going to find ourselves in a situation where you know our adaptations suddenly are very you know uh, um you know they're, they're essentially now these mutations that might kill us right now we find ourselves in a in a you know in a world where those adaptations are, are ill-suited what's truly intrinsic is that we can't really know where it's actually going both biological evolution and social evolution we we're just like in this there's no neutral state like you said like we can't we can't like rely on the 
anything that we've done already isn't necessarily like the default. There is no default, right? Like no matter what we do, we're going to create a progression of some kind that's going to go into some kind of unprecedented territory. And there's no, there's no way around that. And uh, that's, I, I tend to emphasize that that's true, even in short, in the short term on the biological level, right? Like we're, we are affecting human evolution with all of these things that we've like thrown into our lives very recently. Like we're affecting human cognitive evolution with these computers we're using right now, you know, like the whole thing. And, um, but I do think that what you see in both social evolution and biological evolution is that there's like, you know, exactly whatever is laying around already gets repurposed in some fashion for the next development for whatever comes next is just based on what's on what's already there. And I, I so I do think that there's some sense in which we can like think constructively about, I mean, it's really an open question to me. Like, I don't know the answer to this, but he talks about it in terms of Christ being this dividing line. But like when when we started really thinking not just in terms of the future of like the outcome of a war or a harvest or a couple generations, but like asking the question of where civilization is going. And like, I don't know when that started, but I do think it's actually pretty, it is like pretty interesting that we can ask. And so I think that this is a question of degrees. Like, I don't think it can possibly be true that the fact that we can reflect about this and like have conversations about where we would rather end up um, over other possibilities is like totally devoid of meaning. But anybody who thinks that we can actually engineer our way towards a given, like I, you know, I mean, I, I, I talk about like wanting to influence the future all the time, but I'm also emphatic that what the future will actually consist of it's like I can see all these different possibilities that seem plausible, but the actual future will be something that isn't any of those things. It's something different from and probably weirder than anything we can imagine. And so there's a tension there. If you can get behind that and understand that, but then also understand that we do have some agency, but it's just it's just limited. I think the in that in that dynamic tension, you're somewhere around the truth or whatever. And maybe we could dwell on that a little bit. Uh, I forget if I even put in my notes, but just this whole kind of like distinction uh, between, you know, like free will determinism. Uh, do, do you have like any strong uh, views on that? Because like, I mean, even in terms of uh, his descriptions of cultural evolution, if if you're going to be emphatic that, uh, uh, you know, culture evolves uh, similarly in, in the way that, you know, just biological fauna evolve, um what exactly does that mean in terms of uh, free will? What does that mean in terms of just kind of like shaping uh, human parameters in terms of like what is like available to you? Because I mean, like we could like, you know, we could make the distinction between a free will versus determinism and the kind of like very uh, crude sense of uh, if you accumulate enough, you know, social kind of uh uh you know parameters right there that's going to prevent you doing certain things like i don't think for instance it's a it's a coincidence that we don't necessarily have too many blockbuster books anymore uh if 
the kind of like way to titillate yourself is primarily going to be like, um, you know, video games or Hollywood movies, right? Eventually media changes. It's also not very surprising that the, uh, you know, classical Russian uh, prose writers of the 1800s uh, or like English ones for that matter, uh, since they're all kind of writing in terms of, you know, it's going to be serial publications are going to make their money through like submitting to newspapers. Like this is why you end up with huge tomes that maybe artistically could have done with a lot more yeah. kind of editing. Right. Um, but just for the sake of like, well, the writer needs to survive. We, we end up like the, we end up harming the, the thing that we really should get the most of, which is a like great art. We end up harming that for the sake of like, well, we, we kind of like impose a kind of like, you know, a tax in that way where like, okay, since we don't necessarily want to have like a, a logical way of funding this writer, you know, we're going to do this in a way where essentially it's like a regressive tax where the world gets to have lesser art in exchange for somebody being allowed to produce it. So like, you know, the, we have those kinds of parameters, um, uh, but also just like, I guess in terms of philosophically, like can we even discuss something like free will in the ordinary like libertarian style of um you know uh, there's choices that we make that aren't kind of like hard coded by events that occurred you know 5 billion years ago right uh that you know hard coded meaning like it's it's inevitable that x y and z would happen right like where do you fall uh on this especially in terms of um i guess like biological questions my intuition, it's sometimes like I almost, sometimes kind of like really baffled by the very terms that a lot of this stuff is phrased in. And I'm mm -hmm. sort of like, I'm like, well, what do you mean? You know, where it's like, people will talk about this. And of course, any choice you make, like the very, the very fact that we have a system of perception and behavior that's complex enough to even babble on about whether or not we have choices, like that can only exist under certain constraints, you know, there, there's like, mm -hmm. like freedom really does come from constraint in biological systems. And that's, I think, been this very perennial misunderstanding that has pervaded a lot of like, like, I think a lot of nature nurture debates are basically really like predicated on not understanding that where people, people confuse these two very different things. So one is an intractability or an inevitability of outcomes. Like we will always behave in a certain fashion with the question of whether there's a great deal of structure uh, generating, like, bi like biological structure generating our behavior. You know, so like the idea of a blank slate is conflated with the idea of infinite possible behavioral outcomes. And they're not the same thing at all, right? A blank slate is like a computer with no software. It's not going to do anything. It's, it doesn't have any freedom. It can't, it fucking can't do anything. And as anybody who like participated in early attempts at artificial intelligence is aware, the computer doesn't need just a few lines of code that say, here's your objective or whatever. It needs a whole bunch of lines of code that it like, it like imply all of this like very exquisitely elaborated architecture where it can't fucking function, you know? And so... But then what cognitive scientists, like people writing at that convergence of like cognitive science and computer science point out is that all of that elaborate structure creates, it's like, sure, it's this massive set of constraints, but it also creates this exquisite sensitivity to contingency that gives the systems a capacity for more complex behavior than systems that actually have fewer constraints. 
And so a lot of the time it's like that feels like it's not understood. People are like, oh, but if you feel like you're deciding to do something, that's just the predetermined reality of an action potential and a neuron firing according to a law you're not even aware of. And I'm like, I know, but that's like otherwise, like the system they're imagining as free is just like a howling void mm -hmm. with like nothing, you know. And so, uh, you know, I hate to be all like, well, it's really both to every damn thing. But I do. I've no, but I, 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 like I agree. Yeah, 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 you know? yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, like, I, I honestly, like, yeah, I, I think a lot of us, uh, specifically the discussion around uh, determinism versus like libertarian free will or whatever, it is just people. And I, I'm very sensitive to this because, like, you know, if I'm reading something, like, yeah, you know, I'm very, like, I, I would reread a line on what does this mean, really, really outside of my own biases, what is this really saying? So when I really think about what's being said when people say things like libertarian free will or determinism, I think a lot of it just comes down to just a misuse of language. Right. People totally. are just confused about language. They, they're confused about the real like practical ramifications. Like if you believe, for instance, in a truly libertarian free will, you know, um, where like how exactly like like if you ask somebody that believes in libertarian free will to like map out the trajectory of a set of choices, uh, they're not they're not really able to like do this like by dealing with actual pra practical ramifications, whereas like those that accept determinism, uh, they they believe like you said like there's this like total constraint on freedom but it's like that's literally the only way you could have anything done like doing anything in life like you obviously need so many rules constraints um in a way that you know makes sense right you don't want to like over inflate that but by by the uh just by having the constraints right that that really changes uh, that really allows things to happen right so um yeah i, I agree uh, with those observations what do you uh, what what do you think about his idea of um like so he's like tapping later on Francis Bacon uh in uh, a chapter nine right this this idea of like conversation with ancients right he's imagining Francis Bacon just being um you know in conversation with his predecessors in the same way that Lauren Isley uh, feels like when he kind of retires and he's reading at night or whatnot that he's always. Uh, uh, speaking to the past. Uh, I remember first feeling this way when I was a teenager where I was like, well, you know, I I, I have to, because like everybody around me is like, oh, like you should, um, not, not that I wasn't like going out more and stuff uh, as a teenager, I was, but I was at that time already like getting more interested in like, all right, I want time for myself. I want to sit back and read. I don't want to be surrounded by people. And people were telling me like, no, 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 you need to go out and do this and do that and make more friends here. And, you know, just... I, I just, the way that I explained to myself was, well, if I'm not really that interested in like everyday fr friendships in the way that others are, uh, what about the fact that it seems like I'm just cultivating a friend group or a peer group with like everybody that's dead, right? Like these books that I'm reading, right? I think like, well, you know, if, if I'm going to be writing an essay or a poem, like what, what would he think of it, right? What would he, what would he say about that? Um, you know, is he going to be impressed by this? Because I'm not interested in impressing some, you know, like a random group of like contemporary monkeys. I'd be more interested in like, well, who actually did, you know, uh, these accomplishments? And uh, by impressing, all that really means is like, am I building on their accomplishments in a way that's constructive? That's really all that all comes down to, right? It's not, it doesn't even have to be like an ego type thing. Uh, what, what do you think about the idea that there seems to be? be like a lot less conversation with like the the past right like i, I feel like even uh maybe in the bonus show we'll talk about this but like even like when we, when we discuss like palestine now 
the ways that everything is just totally forgotten in terms of um, maybe what we might have learned about uh, the the terror attacks 9-11, right? Uh, what we would have learned about resistance movements after, you know, France said, finally, after killing 3 million civilians in Algeria, we're going to give up this colony, we're going to, you know, decolonize, we're going to move on. Uh, I feel like, you know, we are, you know, and I don't know how chronic this is, like, uh, is it simply, you know, a myth that it seems like people are less in conversation with the past, more willing to forget, whether it's like the neglect of the humanities or whatnot, like, is this something that's accelerating or, you know, are, are, are things like always this way? Is it always kind of like a strategy to uh, only selectively remember, uh, you know, bits and pieces of the past as opposed to, you know, extracting comprehensive lessons because comprehensive lessons, right, going back to the idea of like circumscribed actions, right, they they definitely limit the parameters of what's possible, right, if you, if you take their lessons seriously. So like, what, what do you think about that uh, conflict? Yeah, I mean, I, I kind of see it in a broader tendency that I find really frustrating with people to, I mean, I guess where I've picked up on it the most is in political organizing, where there's like, there's these questions like, okay, here's this set of like chronic realities, these broad fundamental problems. And, you know, like, do we want, does like whatever we're defining as like our political movement or whatever, do we want to actually like address these in a meaningful way? And the tension that's always there is that masses of people, like if what you want to do is generate like significant sort of like uh, mass engagement or activity of any kind, people have these incredibly fickle fleeting sort of like frames of awareness where what they want to respond to is something really like novel that just happened that has this like really ephemeral context. So like, you know, it's like to give an example, like people are burning fossil fuels all the place, all over the place, all over. And you could think about this systemically, but then if what you're trying to do is like get people engaged and motivated to like actually do something, they're way more likely to respond to like, something new being constructed or some like evil piece of equipment going on some ship to the arctic or something that's like passing through your port or whatever it's like like the attraction to ephemeral novelty is so extreme that you end up like that's just like one of my fundamental exhaustions as an organizer is that i feel like i've been like waiting for the moment where we have like a truly fundamental political program but we're just like responding to like a video of a cop doing something terrible. And so mm -hmm. we can never sit down and like really like strategize about what the police fundamentally are, you know, stuff like that. And, uh, and so like, I, I kind of see it in that context. Like I, I do think that there's an incredible, there's something in our dopamine systems now with like how much incessant crazy stimulation we experience that people are like, even, if they're talking about very serious things they're just acting like glitched out dopamine addicts you know like they're acting like fucking crackheads where they're just like give me something new like you know even if it's like apocalyptic and alarming you know mm -hmm. like the whole trump administration was like that where like he would do something that you would think like the liberal media would freak out about and you would think they would maybe want to use that as like a strategic nexus to try to undermine his power, but then he would just do something else and they'd be like, oh, mm -hmm. that's even like, that really upsets me even more, you know? And mm -hmm. it's like, I'm like, yo, crackhead, calm down, like focus mm -hmm. a little bit. 
And so that like that just kind of feels like this really intense temperament that does seem like it's kind of changed. Like I do feel like people have gotten more like that in our lifetimes and that it's sort of like really palpable in a way. Um, but you know, there's there's that other part of it that's like maybe like a deeper, a deeper form of that question where I think that I think that in order to have that conversation with like the ancients or with you know, people who are like engaged in a, a network of ideas that are being disseminated over time, you really need to be able to, you have to have like a certain kind of stimulus responsiveness style where you're not like, you're not, you don't crave like crazy intense, like overstated stimulus all the time. And then that like opens you up to feel because I definitely feel like a very active sense of like I read a paper and it answers some question I have and I feel this real like emotional like I'm in dialogue with this person this person understood the same thing I did and they actually went out and got the answer to the question that we both had and it feels really like intense like I get a flood of emotion out of that but in order to have that experience you have to like not shoot up you know constantly changing uh, mm -hmm. like reward stimuli and like attention grabbing bullshit like all the time mm -hmm. and that's something that like that category of people that would be such an interesting category of people to study at this point like people who aren't as people who can still read books right because there's not mm -hmm. that many of us you know i read more now than i ever did probably but like most people really stopped reading about 10 years ago um and like people who just kind of generally aren't like quite as wrapped up in these cycles I don't know like what makes those people and like what do we all think or do that would be like a really fascinating population to study yeah and well I, that's the thing like I I often think like well uh, on the one hand you know I don't want to keep up with all this bullshit right like now they're telling you 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 got to now master all these AI tools and grant like you know I think it's going to be like a, a big part of a human culture but you know, uh, a part of me is just like, I don't want to deal with this kind of shit at all. Just like, you know, leave me alone with this shit. Let me just do, you know, what, what I've always done. But I feel like there's definitely an acceleration of things to keep up with. Um, and, you know, it's sometimes hard to like uh, go through like what's valuable and what's not. Because I mean, like right now with a lot of AI stuff, it's uh, it's not very valuable. Uh, the You know, the 2022, 2023, uh, a lot of it was just kind of like very overinflated, right? In terms of uh, the promises, totally. not in the long term, but, you know, in the short to medium term, definitely. Like, I, I remember like, uh, you know, recently uh, I had like two very negative AI experiences. One, Amazon sent me some protein bars that were expired. And for the first time ever, I was not able to speak to a person. Like they were not, you know, they were not, nobody was picking up. It was a, it was a robot on the other end. And I kept saying, expired, expire. And they just had no idea what I was talking about. And then it's like a goodbye. And the second one was like a, a random video, like a movie review of mine, got flagged by YouTube for cyberbullying and harassment. Um, so I have to go <laughs> through this like goddamn training. They're like, no, they're like, sit down for this training. It's going to take 15 minutes. It actually took about uh, two, two minutes because I guess the people really don't read right they would have a, yeah, a, a yeah. trouble reading and answering a multi-choice uh, question uh but anyway i mean these are the two experiences with ai like like right now if i go on a website or or i you know go on phone and they're like 
or you could press two or whatever for our AI assistant. No way. You know, I don't want to talk to this goddamn AI assistant because I know I'm not going to get what I want, right? It's just not, you know, this kind of stuff is not ready. So everything's being thrown at you ready or not um, to keep up with. And it really is thinning out uh, so many other forms of thinking, so many, you know, like for my own life, like one thing that I'm very struggling against and always trying to fight against is now I have to constantly write in a very slow process. Doesn't matter who reads it, who doesn't like you have to do this for yourself and you have to do this for the future. Right. I mean, like, cause, cause eventually this kind of stuff is going to be studied. The pendulum is going to swing back again. So, you know, uh, too bad that you, you know, we uh, exist under these circumstances, but we can't choose the circumstances. And uh, we also can't choose uh, ultimately, um, you know, what, what we uh, should be doing, which is this, like, it's uh, uh, if you have that compulsion, I mean, just kind of go for it. Um, maybe actually we should just, cause like we still have a little bit of the book left, but I don't want the, the public show to be too long and get slammed by the YouTube algo. So maybe we'll actually, the remainder of the book we'll discuss in a bonus show. And also we're going to discuss some other things on that show. So, uh, for instance, I want to talk about, uh, a thing that Arnold recently started. Um, uh, I guess you're, you're calling it the world tree center. Um, yeah. I'm not sure if that's still the name, so we could talk about that. Uh, uh, maybe some more comments on AI hell. Uh, recently, in the last month or two, there was this article in The Intercept on this, um, I guess you could call him a, a climate uh, a climate economist, let's call him, uh, to be charitable, uh, William Nordhaus, who has recently been kind of rejected by more and more mainstream people as like his modeling being very uh, optimistic in terms of the long-term effects of uh, warming. He said something like, uh, five degrees Celsius might only contract GDP by 10%, you know, which is like, I mean, if you know, if you know what four degrees does, right, which makes uh, most of the world uninhabitable, I'm not sure how you come away with that. But um, we could talk because another thing is like, when whenever you and I talk, I feel like, I don't know if you're a harbinger of something, Arnold or what, but every single time that we talk, the world is more and more out of control. Maybe it's just a, a, a factor of just like at this point, we reach a stage where just like the passage of time, give it three months, the world's going to be a little months, more out of control, totally. right? So um, anyway, a bunch of other stuff too, I guess we could get to Pal Palestine, just kind of like how, you know, these things get talked about, you know, like historically into the present day, you know, what it means in terms of, um, you know, because I, I I do think there's like something to the idea of uh, if we have this like slow moving genocide, that's it's been slow moving for 75 years, but a slow moving genocide that we could actually map out in such a excruciating detail, much more so than we ever have for like in terms of documentation for the Holocaust, let's say, right? Because now we have videos, right? Now we have everything and it's being, you know, live tweeted. The genocide that gets live tweeted, you know, and everybody knows what's going on, everybody's seeing it. And yet nobody can not only do anything about it, but if you say something about it, you're going to lose your job. So um, anyway, a lot of uh, topics to discuss. So the overtime segment, uh, for those that um, are patrons, is coming up. And for the public show, thank you guys for sticking uh, with us. And for the patrons, the show is now.